0: The uh, Bible to the book of Colossians. We're in Colossians 3. We're starting in verse 5, Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Let's pray. Father, we want to ask your blessing upon the cooks as um, they continue to prepare for the task that you've called them to do in going to the furthermost parts of the earth to translate your word and to uh, be used by you to rescue a people that you've called to be your own we pray god you would continue to bring in the funds and have them reach um, the full funding and even beyond it lord that um, the different um, churches are still waiting to hear from they'd hear from soon god and uh, we thank you lord that the plans are in motion and that tickets are bought, God, and that December 10th is circled for us to uh, commission them, uh, along with the other churches and people that are joining with them and partnering with them, God, and partnering with us uh, to send them off, Lord. So we pray for uh, the next month and a half, two months, Lord, as they prepare to do that. That Your hand would would get everything into place that needs to get into place and open up the doors, Lord, that only You can open up. We do thank You, God, that we're privileged. To have uh, young people in our midst and have children in our midst we pray lord for your blessing upon each one of them and that each one of them would come to know you at an early age be gracious to save them let them know the sweetness of knowing you and lord may you remind us uh, us uh, parents of the sweetness remind us of the sweetness of knowing you and, and how blessed we are and how sweet the gospel is and how good The good news really is, Lord. Continue to bless our time. We pray for our brothers and sisters uh, across this world that they would continue to be faithful um, here in this land and in the lands beyond. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Belize that you'd continue to uh, be with them. Let them continue to be faithful and uh, continue your work in them, God. We pray you continue your work in us as well. All this for your glory. Amen. The first two chapters of Colossians, we've been looking at really laying a foundation of, of doctrine for us. And what you see a lot of times in the New Testament epistles is that they'll, uh, the authors will give us a good foundation of doctrine and teaching, and then they'll move on to practical application. Some people might actually call that practical theology. It's the idea of, okay, we have all this information and knowledge, and we've been Um, given this great foundation of who we are in Christ and who God is and what Christ has done for us, then now what? Like, what do we do with that information? And so Colossians 1 and 2 lays that foundation for us. We've learned about Christ. We've learned about who we are. And now we get into basically what we might call practical living. We've got that information. We've got a good foundation. And so what's next? Um, I would say the doctrinal indicatives move us to ethical imperatives. So, the indicatives like the way things are, what God has said about us and what he said about his word, what he said about himself, what he said about his son, then leads us to certain commands that he expects us to follow through. And you've heard me say before, I'll keep saying it listen, theology is never just an intellectual pursuit. It's not just a pursuit for knowledge and just knowledge's sake. Um, we have to, when we're talking theology, you have to bridge the gap from just intellectual pursuit to then applying it. Applied theology, practical theology, whatever you want to call it. Basically, living out the truths that we know. Um, Here's the thing. What we do comes from what we are. Or you could say who we are. So, we are in Christ. Therefore, these are the things that we do. And we've already gotten a little bit um, starting in verse five, we find out there's certain things that God calls us to put to death. So we, we have to understand and, and, and believe um, the who we are, and then we'll understand the, the what we do. Imagine if for a moment your friend called you up and was like, "Hey, we need an extra player uh, on the team today, and you show up and you grab the ball and you run to the opposite side of the field, and then you start doing a t- dance like you scored a touchdown. And they're like, hey, this isn't football. (laughs) So then you grab it, and you're like, you're dribbling it, right? And you're looking for the basket, but there's no basket. And they're like, this isn't basketball. This is soccer. Well, it kind of helps you to know, like, what game you're playing and what you are, a soccer player, so that you know what to do once you're in the game. Well, it's the same with being a believer. It's good to know, like, you're a believer, but, like, what does that actually mean? What does it mean? that God has done a great work in your life, that he's been gracious to save you, that he's poured out his mercy and grace upon you, and that he has justified you, cleansed you completely, and one day promises to glorify you. That's important to know, that you didn't save yourself, that there's nothing that you can do to earn your way to heaven. That's important to know, so that when you get the commands, you're operating out of who you are, or you can even say whose you are. You are God's. He bought you with the price, with the precious blood of his son, Jesus. Once we have that established, then we can get into the practical application for us. And what happened in the early church is you had um, droves and droves and droves of Gentiles and Jews, but Gentiles getting saved. And all of a sudden, they had been leaving these just whatever, lives of, of sin and sin and sin and sin and sin. And so what are they supposed to do? Well, They're supposed to go into all the nations, and what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to disciple them, right? That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're sending the cooks to do, disciple the nations, train. And so one of the things that you see in the New Testament is they will use uh, key words to help categorize certain things that believers are supposed to do, certain things that believers aren't supposed to do, certain things that they're supposed to be um, looking towards supposed to, certain things that they're supposed to be aware of. And so there's probably, I'd say, four, in the Greek at least, four key words that we see in the next couple chapters that talk about what you might call key words that um, the early church would have used to help new believers understand and kind of categorize the different things that they're supposed to do. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see that they're supposed to put off. That would be the first key word in our English. It'd be two words, put off. Then we're going to see, and and, uh, we can see, so you can see, we'll just look at it briefly. Um, Verse five, put to death. So that's the put off. But then once we get to verse 12, what is it? Oh, it's put on. So that'd be the second category. Once we get down to verse 18, we see the, the be subject to, like what does, what does it look like once we get into uh, relationships? So then it's be subject, and then once we get to uh, Colossians 4 and we get into verse 2, it's the watch and pray. And you will see similar um, concepts and similar words like that used in many of the New Testament epistles because it really helped people categorize, okay, there's the put off, there's the put on, there's the be subject, And then there's the watch, be alert, be ready, be careful, those kind of things. Well, we get two lists here, and we're just going to look probably just at the first list today. Um, But the focus in this first list, and any of the lists that we see, is always righteous living. That the Lord wants us to live upright lives before him. Walking in a fashion after the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's not so much this idea of this, like, abstract a lot of times people talk about like theology being abstract. Well, I guess in one sense it po- possibly could, but um, any abstract theology needs to become concrete at some point. It's really not going to do us any good. And we can talk about some type of abstract living. No, the New Testament, it's pretty much like concrete living. Like, here's what we are supposed to do. It's very concrete and solid. Here's how to act. And think about that for a moment. The Gnostics, what were they emphasizing here in Colossians? These visionary experiences, uh, these worship experiences, worship of heavenly beings. But pause for a moment. Where does God put the emphasis? Think about it for a moment. These lists point to the need to focus on faithful obedience in everyday living. So God wants you walking with him. Everyday practical living. He's not as concerned about you having an experience as he is with you walking in obedience, okay? He's not as concerned about you having an experience as he is about you walking in obedience. And here's the thing, modern-day American Christianity, uh, we could even say modern-day conservative American Christianity, waters Christianity down into simply a one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ. And you don't see that in the New Testament. So, do you know what's done in modern-day conservative American Christianity? What it does is it allows a man who's a a jerk to his wife and treats his kids like trash to walk around acting like he has the greatest relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's all about a one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ. We've isolated that relationship so much that we've taken it outside of the context of the family and the church and even uh, the civil society. Think about it for a moment. Why? Why why does this happen? Well, because it's only about you and Jesus. So we've taken something that has much truth to it, and then we've twisted it and distorted it and made it much bigger than it really should be. So why? why? Why does he think he has this great relationship with Jesus? Because he had some experience in his quiet time that day. And he feels great about it. And because he goes to the men's Bible study... And he has the right answers, and people think, saying, wow, wow, he really knows what he's talking about. But what's on the inside? It's like, it's like Jesus talked about, right? The white tombs. What's on the inside? Dead men's bones. Just death. And you know, I've seen this. I mean, <clears throat> and it, it just does a dishonor to the Lord. You're portraying one thing when you're really another. And the sad thing is, the church puts its stamp of approval on it. So as long as you claim experiences, have cool stories, and know about the Bible, then people look up to you. That's kind of the idea that we can give people falsely. And then what happens? He goes to the men's Bible study, and he's talking about how bad his wife is and how horrible his kids are, and then we're like, oh, sorry, brother, we're going to pray for you. We, like, baptize the whole thing. And then that same person thinks, well, if everyone could just be like me, then we'd be doing a lot better. Well, what has he done? I mean, he's deceived himself, and he's, he's deprived in mind, and depraved in mind as well, but he's isolated things to just him and Jesus. So as long as he thinks his relationship with Jesus is great, then the world can be falling apart around him, and he can be the cause of the world falling apart around him, and it's not his fault. That is American conservative Christianity today. This has damaged the church. How many people have you talked to that are just like, well, I have a a, a relationship with Jesus, but I don't go to church. Or I have a relationship with Jesus, and I don't need the church. Or I have a relationship with Jesus, and I mean, yeah, we sometimes occasionally go, we're a little bit involved. Well, that's that concept that has just taken over. It's a house full of lies. Why? Because it's about the groom and his bride it's about the groom and his bride and listen no individual in the new testament is ever called the church no individual no individual in the new testament is ever called the church and you're not 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 the church and I'm not the church but guess what we're the church But no individual is called that. It's believers gathered together that the term church is used to describe. And so what happens? Much, much, much of the New Testament is focused on this idea of us being the church and us having a relationship with Jesus. And many and most of the commands in the New Testament are in the plural. They were given to believers to live out with other believers, to live out in the community of other believers. So this first list in verse 5, we're going to walk through it. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So sexual immorality—that's the word pornea. It's kind of like uh, a very broad, describing broad term, describing really all sorts of sexual licentiousness. It's like a catch-all in a sense. Uh, look at briefly at, at keep your place in Colossians, but look at Matthew 19. This is Jesus teaching on divorce. He says in Matthew 19, Now when Jesus had finished these saints, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. That word, which I believe is in every version, sexual immorality, that is that Greek word porneia. It would not just mean adultery, but it would include adultery. So if you think of like, you know, a big circle, and the different things that would fall under the, you know, into that porneia circle, it'd be any type of sexual immorality. Or adultery, fornication, bestiality, homosexuality, anything dealing with any type of sex outside the bounds of marriage. The next word, impurity. It's akatharsia. Oftentimes, it's used in relation to sexual immorality, and it's interesting if you start looking up at some of these different verses, as we're going to do here. You'll see these same terms used um, kind of like in in a string together, just as we're seeing here. So if you look at Romans chapter 1, you'll see something similar. Let's start in verse 21, Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So in verse 24, we see the word lusts is one of the words that we're going to get to in a moment. But it's lusts of the hearts to impurity. Same word. In the context, you usually find this word of dealing with sexual immorality. Why does he repeat it? Well, we're going to get to that in a moment. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20. This is Paul. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, And that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier. And have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. All of those things, here and in Colossians... What are they describing? They're describing different sexual and moral practices. Impurity, sexual immorality. Look at the next one in the list. Passion, just literally passion. It would refer to a shameful passion of a sexual nature. This is confirmed, again, by how Paul uses it elsewhere uh, in various letters of his. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse three, First Thessalonians 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Again, that passion of lust, same word there, and the context is talking about sexual immorality. Look at the next word, evil desire. Now, it can refer to sinful desires in general, but again, in context, as you see Paul use it throughout the New Testament, it's always dealing with illicit sexual immorality. Now, desires alone, just that word, um, sometimes it's used in a good, it can mean good desires, sometimes it can mean bad desires. Paul here qualifies it with the word evil because he wants to make crystal clear. If he was telling you to put off all these things and he's like put off desires he wanted to be crystal clear that he's not saying hey don't don't have desires but put off the evil desires and then lastly covetousness the idea is a ruthless greed a couple versions translated as greed and it's always wanting to have more or you could translate it as an inappropriate desire for more So why so many words to talk about sexual immorality and sexual temptations? Because God knows how dangerous sexual sin is. Because this is the downfall for many, many, many people. And this is the the hook that they get snared by Satan. And the pursuit of sex has kept many out of the kingdom. Their pursuit of sexual immorality, their sex drive was more important to them in pleasing themselves than their obedience to God. And in a society saturated with sex, listen, you must resist any and all forms outside of marriage. You guys got a problem saying amen today? Okay, thank you. Uh, Recently, there was a prayer breakfast um, put on uh, by one of the senators. I'm not sure quite what he was thinking, but um, he had a representative, her name's Nancy Mace, speak at the prayer breakfast. And when she she got up to speak, um, she talked about having sex with her fiancé. And said, when I woke up this morning at 7, I was, putting, I was getting picked up at 7.45. Patrick, my fiancé, tried to pull me by my waist over this morning in bed, and I was like, no, baby, we don't got time for that this morning. I got to get to the prayer breakfast. <laughs> really? Not only do you have to get to the prayer breakfast, you're speaking at the prayer breakfast. And that's, that's just Acceptable. Listen, when we have representatives sleeping with their fiancés and calling themselves believers and thinking it's no big deal to talk about that at a prayer breakfast, like, we have a problem in America with sex and with Christianity. And when you're okay flaunting your sin, that's a dangerous place to be. The world normalizes sex outside of marriage. But guess what? The Bible doesn't. So, water down Christianity, It normalizes sex outside of marriage. The Bible doesn't. And think about it for a moment. Paul is seeing all sorts of believers, uh, all sorts of people get saved. They're becoming believers, and so are the rest of the apostles, and the word is going forth, and it was a sex-plagued society. Corinth was probably the worst, but it was bad everywhere. And part of worship with some of these gods or goddesses was to have sex with the temple prostitute. So these, these Gentiles are getting saved out of lives of wanton pleasure. But look at these commands that Paul gives. Is he, I mean, does he mince words? No. Does he water anything down? No. So even these people getting pulled out of, you know, Uh, and saved from some just situations where just sex was saturated everywhere, I'd say much in our society today, like it is, but he didn't make excuses for them or water down the commands. He didn't. In fact, he spends, look back in Colossians. I mean, he uses all these different terms describing what they're not supposed to do what they're supposed to put to death what they're supposed to kill how many words sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness five words what's he trying to i mean you you can't have any doubt reading this and the other passages that we looked at that paul was like sex outside of marriage and all that stuff is totally unbiblical ungodly and guess what oh verse six on account of these the wrath of god is coming He didn't mince words. So we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, we already read it, abstain from sexual immorality. Again, both those words, it's that porneia used. Think about for a moment, though, what Job said. It's one of my favorite verses in Job 31, and I used to quote it all the time to myself when I was single. Job 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what's he talking about? That it, What, he just looked at married women or something? Or he just walked around only looking at his wife? No, we know exactly what he's talking about that he would not look at a woman to lust. Right? Listen, if you have a porn problem, you have to deal with it. That's part of the pornea. That's where we actually get the word from. Pornea, pornography. You need to deal with it and kill your sin. This idea of putting it to death, I would translate it in my little paraphrase, kill your sin. Kill your sin. If you're married, you have a, and you have a flirtatious relationship with someone at your church or your 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 work, you need to deal with it, and kill your sin. And some of you might be like, "Well, I, you know, I don't I don't look at porn and I don't I don't flirt with people." Listen, you can look just about anywhere and not have too many problems finding things that could cause you to lust. So you need to make that same covenant that Job made with his eyes. Like, I will not look lustfully. And you might not look at porn, but um, some people read novels that just simply aren't pleasing to the Lord. All sorts of trash and matters that shouldn't be written about in such a manner. And you might not look at porn, but um, all the guys I know do just fine, unfortunately, lusting after a woman even when she has her clothes on. So we have to kill our sin. We have to put it to death. And all sin, all sin, all sin, all sin must be drastically dealt with. The consequences of not dealing with sin are dreadful. Look at Matthew 5. than that your whole body go in to hell. Okay, it is no coincidence that Jesus talks about cutting out your eye and cutting off your hand right after he talks about lust. It's not just like, oh, that's a great place, that just works smoothly. No. I mean, he's tying it, in this case, I mean, he's talking about all sin, but he's talking specifically about the sin of the porneia, the sexual immorality. It has caused many a person's downfall. And what's Jesus telling us here? Drastic action must be taken to deal with sin. Your life is on the line. So yeah, he, he uses this hyperbole, but his point, and if he's going to use hyperbole, there's a point like, hey guys, sin is so serious, especially the pornea, the sexual sin, that you have to take drastic action to deal with it. You can't just baby it or pet it or, or coddle it. You got to deal with it. You got to kill it. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you can only cling to one thing, your sin or Christ. I mean, think about it for a moment. Christ is going in one direction, and, and your sin takes you in the other direction. So if you're trying to cling to both, what's going to happen? Like at some point, you'll lose grasp of one or the other. And if you're, you're, you're grasping your sin, you're going to lose your grasp of Christ. You can only cling to one. We're supposed to cling to Christ. Think of how much he's done for us, brothers and sisters. And you're going you're gonna to sell that for the, the little bowl of, of porridge of sex? Sexual immorality? You're going to be like Esau? I mean, that's what some of us are doing. We're selling ourselves just for that. We're just willing to sacrifice it all and lay down our birthright, the very thing that God has done for us, adoption into the kingdom. Why? Why? for our own selfish pleasure. These things ought not to be. Christ has done so much for us. Don't abandon your groom at the altar. And if you look back in Colossians, look, look there, the idea in in, verse, in this passage here, and this is what we need to be reminded of, In verse 3, for you have died, for you have died. And then verse 5, therefore, put it to death. You've died, so then put your sin to death. In other words, act like it. If you've died, then live as if you're dead. The old is gone, the new has come. What do we see over and over again? What do we need to exhibit? We need to realize that our life shows our theology. Our life shows what we believe. And what we believe exhibits itself over and over again in our actions. Don't be like Judas. Here's what it says in John. Judas they're talking about oh you're spending all this money says so Judas said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it but he was one of the 12 and he looked good on the outside to everybody I mean really he he must have been considered trustworthy for the other 11 apostles to be like, hey, why don't you you be in charge of the money? You don't put the the untrustworthy person in charge of the money if you know he's untrustworthy. You don't put the guy who's going to pilfer the bag in charge of it, right? So on the outside, he had everybody fooled. Not Jesus, but he had everybody else fooled. He looked good on the outside. And what do we find? Nothing on the inside. And here, here's the, the bottom line. You can die or your sin can die. Like, you, you got to put your sin to death. Otherwise, you're going to have a death that's worse than, worse than a physical death. You'll have a spiritual death. And what, is, what does it say in first, in first Corinthians? Just turn there just briefly. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look look at that list again. At least three of the first four deal with sexual immorality. I would argue you could put idolatry in there sexually immoral, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. I mean, that's how the list starts, along with idolaters. And what's he saying? They're not inheriting the kingdom. Why? Because they've put that in front of the kingdom and they've put that in front of God and they've made that number one in their lives. So some of you, you need to have a little funeral for your sin and you need to put it to death and you need to bury it. Notice what Paul says back in Colossians. Verse 7, in these two, in these you two once walked. You once walked. You once walked. Past tense, you once walked. Okay? You might have once walked for a long time, but you once walked. And then what does he say in verse 8? But now. But now. okay. So there's the then, And there's the now. There's the once you did this, but now you're called to do this. So yeah, that might have been something that characterized who you were at some point in the past. It should not categorize who you are now. Once, but now. So here's the thing. If you're a believer, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, if he's changed your life, if he has given you his Holy Spirit, if you've been regenerated by his grace and mercy and love, then become what you are. Live it out. Become what you are. Kill your sin and put it to death and be rid of it. And if the Lord has spoken to you, and if you are convicted and you know there are things you're supposed to put to death today, then you get on your knees and you plead to God for mercy and you repent of your sin. And you forsake it completely. And God is a very gracious God to forgive you. And you get brothers or sisters around you to help walk with you through that and to hold you accountable and to help hold your hand as you go through that. But choose life. Don't choose death. Choose life. Put that stuff to death, but choose life. You have life in Jesus Christ. Death in everything else. So repent and turn to him, kill your sin. Let's pray. Father, I do ask for whoever's here that is dealing with any type of sexual sin that you would convict them of it. You'd change their heart on that matter. Have them to repent. Have them to forsake their sin, to put it to death, to kill it. Have them to walk away from it. Do whatever they need to do, God. Drastic action. Because you are worth more than anything or anyone that the world might have to offer. So let us choose you and throw off whatever hinders, put it to death. So I pray, God, that those who are doing that, you'd be merciful to them, Father. Be gracious to them. Be loving to them. Show them that you are quick to forgive. You are quick to cleanse. Change hearts, Father. And, and, and bend our hearts to you. More and more. Focused on you. Set our hearts on things above. Not on earthly things. Amen. Amen. If you'd